and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and thank you so much for joining us as we look into how COVID-19 has impacted the family. We'll discuss the current marriage rate and fertility trends and address some of the potential long-term effects from this two-year pandemic. And we have a wonderful guest to break it all down. Brad Wilcox joins us. Brad Wilcox is director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His research has focused on marriage, fatherhood, and cohabitation, especially in the ways that family structure, civil society, and culture influence the quality and stability of family life. He is the co-author of Gender and Parenthood, Biological and Social Scientific Perspectives, co-author of Wither the Child, Causes and Consequences of Low Fertility, and the author of Soft Patriarchs, New Men, How Christianity Shapes Fathers and Husbands. I also think, Brad, that you have a new book that you're working on. Um, but first of all, thank you so much for joining us on She Thinks today. It's great to be here, Beverly. Thanks for having me. And your new book, what are you currently working on to add to your list of books that you've done? Yeah, it's a new book on marriage, and it's going to be for HarperCollins and finishing up this summer. And the book is basically you know, arguing that marriage and family matter more than ever for adults and kids, and that there are three groups who are particularly uh, successful today in getting and staying married. And then finally, that kind of like our ruling class is behind a kind of cultural agenda that makes it much harder for folks to make good decisions about uh, marriage and family life in the U.S. today. So those are kind of the three themes that are going to be articulated in the book. And important themes, especially as we are seeing the rate of marriage um, continue to go down, fertility going down, and how COVID impacts that all. Uh, but I first just want to start with just thinking of marriage itself. Um, first of all, when we talk about marriage, are we including same-sex marriage in your research as well, or or, or do you only focus on um, couples, man and woman, being married? Sure. So for the research that basically Institute for Family Studies does and the National Marriage Project does, we include both same-sex and heterosexual couples. Okay. Uh, for the book I'm writing, I'm focusing on married uh, couples, heterosexual couples with kids. It turns out there are really actually very few same-sex couples raising kids in the United States married. Um, and so when it comes to kind of basically offering a rich empirical portrait of families in the U.S. That just means you have to kind of focus on heterosexual couples with kids. Got it. Got it. So that's an important distinction there and looking at the research. And as far as marriage itself, let's just start with some of the data. How is marriage doing or how was it doing pre-COVID and how is it doing two years after COVID? So I think kind of heading into COVID, what we were seeing was, you know, both a kind of retreat from marriage, a kind of decline um, in marriage's sort of power and presence in the U.S., um, and then also a growing marriage divide where Americans who are more educated and affluent um, are more likely to put a ring on it and to stay married. But I'm also seeing in my research that Americans who are religious and Americans who are Asian American are also particularly likely um, to get married and to uh, and to stay married as well. So that was kind of the trend heading into um, heading into COVID. And what I think COVID did was that it kind of accentuated um, those marriage trends that I just mentioned. Also, um, it tended to kind of accelerate the decline in fertility in that first basic you know year and a half in in the wake of COVID's arrival. 
I think what we're now seeing, though, is a kind of a slight recovery, um, both in the marriage rate and in the fertility rate as people kind of move forward with, you know, relationships and with intentions to have kids that they put off in, you know, um, in the darkest moments of, of 2020. So I, what I would sort of say is kind of in the short term, we're going to see, you know, an uptick in kind of family formation and obviously pleased about that. Um, but I would expect that kind of after that recovery has kind of been, been logged, we'll see a continuing decline um, in marriage and fertility, you know, within about two years uh, from now. But do you find that there could be some uptick in marriage because of the fact that COVID had people maybe leave cities, move back home or move to a smaller town, maybe easier to find somebody to date there, or even just people who realized, okay, maybe my job has been thrown upside down. My world's been thrown upside down. I really don't want to live alone. And so this feeling of loneliness and isolation, did it cause people to actually search out, not just somebody um, to spend a little time with, to have fun with, but actually a long-term commitment that leads to marriage? Yeah, that's a great question. It's probably the $60,000 question when it comes to marriage in the wake of the pandemic. Um, I I certainly know that there are lots of single adults, and I've spoken to them from my book, who kind of found the lockdowns to be extraordinarily um, difficult emotionally. And, you know, it's kind of a new motivation on their part to, um, you know, to rethink marriage or to um, kind of pick up with, you know, the search for um, a spouse. So it's certainly possible that COVID may have kind of reset, you know, some of these trends in some ways. We'll have to kind of look at, you know, how things, you know, look in about three years to kind of see if there's any kind of major shift in the, you know, in sort of the, the broader trends we've been tracking in the last 20 years. And when you look at marriage, obviously, I think you come from the perspective that marriage is important. Why do you think marriage is important, not just to the two people getting married, but also to society? So marriage is that institution that really grounds and guides adult relationships and families. And of course, I think some people think about marriage as kind of like a, maybe like a Christian issue, for instance. But if you kind of take a broader view um, of, you know, human societies, human history, and you kind of look across time and space, what you see is that in the vast majority of cultures, and certainly I think every civilization that I'm aware of, you know, we see marriage. And so I think marriage, you know, basically is a human institution that provides some kind of direction and purpose to sexual relationships that gives people a sense of kind of kinship and that connects, um, you know, both parents on average to their children. So these are all kind of key sort of social functions that marriage serves. And also tends to kind of provide an important level of social stability for, you know, cultures and civilizations as well. Um, because, again, it gives adults some security and direction in their, in their lives and then uh, tends to give families more stability as well. And I know, so So I am someone who got married at the age of 41, first marriage, and something that I had wanted to do for a long time, but just struggled to find somebody um, to marry for a variety of reasons. And so I think one of the trends that we see is just people getting married later in life. I think there are a variety of reasons for that. I can speak from a female perspective in that a lot of times it's, it's hard to find men who are focused on marriage as well, or we've been told to focus on a career, let's say, and so we did that first 
divorced and kind of pushed aside this idea of marriage in our 20s and then in our 30s woke up and thought, oh man, I really got to deal with this. I have a clock that's ticking. But what are some of the reasons you see that people may delay marriage and that that may inevitably lead to not finding somebody to marry? Yeah, I think everything you mentioned is right on the money. What we've been seeing in attitudinal data, Beverly, is that recent Pew surveys, for instance, have been reporting that young adults accord more importance to their careers and to their bank accounts than they do to marriage and parenthood. So there's kind of this idea out there that kind of your job will be that thing that fulfills you, provides your life with direction and purpose. Um, and the reality actually is that we still see in the research that marriage family life matter a lot more for predicting things like happiness than, you know, does the size of your bank account or the character of your work. So I think that's that's one issue that I'm seeing in the research. A second thing that I'm seeing is that a lot of women that I speak with, including women at UVA that I talk to, are frustrated with the men in their lives. Um, not all of them, of course, but they kind of feel like there are too many men out there who don't have a lot of direction and don't have kind of the willingness to commit to a relationship. And I think kind of the arrival of smartphones and dating apps has in some ways only augmented that because it's given at least some subset of men kind of more choices they can, you know, more easily access dating partners in ways that um, I think can inhibit commitment on their part as well. So that's, I think, also an issue, sort of the man issue and all of this. Um, and then just we have seen when it comes to the economy kind of a much more um, – an economy that basically where men who don't have college degrees are much more likely t- today not to be working um, stably, either for reasons related to their own issues or because um, you know there's been a, a plant closure or some other kind of major economic shift you know in their area. So I think all three of those factors kind of basically according too much importance to work in some ways, men not kind of having the capacity to commit. Um, and then changes in the economy, which have had a, a particularly deleterious impact on working class men, um, have all kind of combined to push up the age at, at first marriage and reduce the number of people who are getting married. So what we're projecting now, um, based upon a recent Urban Institute report, is that about a third of young adults you know, in their 20s and early 30s today will never marry. And that's kind of, that's like record territory, you know, for us in the U.S. So that's, that's to to me, pretty, you know, pretty concerning. Yeah, it's very concerning. Something that I've thought about just with my age range, being in my 40s, is that I've I've often wondered if those who are the same age as me, we were the first generation that really struggled to find spouses. And there are men who are in this category as well. And so like the, and I've thought about this with, you know, my nieces or other family members, this idea that we tell young people, we always say when you get married or when you have kids. But I think so often it's if. The reality is it's an if these days, and I don't think we're preparing young people for that potential. And and I would also just be curious what you think about how do we help them if they desire to get married? What can we do? Yeah, I think it's important to, on the first point, just to acknowledge that, you know, historically we look um, across, you know, our history in the U.S., we look to Ireland, my life's from I mean, way back in the day, your family's from Ireland. Um, and of course, there, there were times where there was tremendous economic privation, where, you know, there were a decent number of folks who didn't get married, and they would be kind of often living with, you know, their kin, you know, with a sister or brother, and they'd be the aunt or the uncle who'd kind of be in the household. 
And I think given what we're seeing today, we're going to see more of those kind of extended families um, emerging so that, you know, people who never marry will end up living with a brother or sister um, and or close to them. You know, I've seen that certainly here in Charlottesville, you know, women that I know who are living close to family and, you know, and, and, and spending time with them and, <clears throat> and their kids. And that's that's great. It's you know, it's not necessarily the ideal, but it's certainly better than just being on your own entirely. Um, but in terms of the second point you're making, I think, you know, I would definitely encourage young adults um, and do encourage students at EVA, for instance, to be a lot more intentional about their 20s, to kind of think about it as a prime opportunity, you know, this decade to find a spouse if you're looking to get married um, and not to assume that you can kind of focus on your work and having fun for about eight years and then find like the best possible partner when you're, you know, when you're 28 and looking to put a ring on it by, you know, age 30. So I think, you know, the, the big takeaway, again, is to kind of encourage younger adults in their early 20s to, to really be very intentional about looking for people and even thinking about where they live. Because some places in the U.S. have, for instance, many more men than women, and some places have many more women than men. Um, and so if you're looking to kind of find a spouse, you should be kind of aware of how you know, the geographic concentration of women and men, you know, uh, might help you find a spouse or hinder you when it comes to finding a spouse. So ladies move to Alaska, your chances are better. <laughs> That's one thing that we can learn. Well, um, for instance, yeah. And I think I've heard even Silicon Valley is relatively more men than women. So that's, you know, just thinking about these things is, you know, is worth keeping in mind if marriage is a key life goal for yourself. It, where do you rate the happiness factor in all of this? And that may not be an area that you research. Obviously, some people have broken marriages, hard marriages, reasons for divorce. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that a marriage is automatically going to lead to happiness. But what is what is the data show on marriage equating to happiness? So I, I would say I think three different things. One is that there's a very clear and strong correlation between marriage and happiness in America. So folks who are married, on average, are much more likely to say that they're very happy, uh, for instance, compared to folks who are not married. Um, and I think in some ways, sort of the positive effect of marriage, um, you know, is likely to increase um, in family more generally. and cover that in a second. Uh, but the second thing, of course, to note here is there's a huge debate among academics about how much of this is called, you know, causation or correlation. And, of course, it could be that the kinds of people who get married have more wealth or better social skills or something else that kind of makes them the kind of person who will be happier in general. So there's, there is a kind of a debate about whether or not marriage per se matters. Um, but from my vantage point, kind of looking at the relationship between um, marital status and happiness, um, you know, I do think that, you know, marriage is a kind of a boost when it comes to happiness, but also kind of protects you against you know, things like um, depression and uh, loneliness as well in ways that, that do seem to be causal. The third point I'd make, though, is that family, I'm sorry, marital satisfaction is a big qualifier for all this, particularly for women. So what we see is that it looks like for women, you know, if they're in a good enough relationship or in a great relationship, you know, that gives them a boost. Um, but if they're in a difficult relationship, um, that's likely to have sort of negative effects on their emotional well-being and their physical well-being. Uh, whereas guys, to be frank, you know, are just often <laughs> happy to be married. You know, I mean, they're not, and frankly, men are just not as um, attentive 
to all the ebbs and flows of a relationship. I mean, my wife can tell you 27 things that I've done badly in the last, you know, two days. <laughs> and I can't name one thing that she's done badly in the last two days. Um, and part of that is just that she has the capacity to sort of, I think, monitor the, the ups and downs, you know, of our relationship um, uh, more, uh, more deeply than do I. So, so again, the point that I'm making is that quality is, is, is an issue, and it also turns out to be a, just a huge predictor of um, people's overall happiness, um, but I think particularly for women. And let's talk about government policies. Do you think that there should be put in policies that promote marriage? Is this more of we need as individuals and community members and family members just promote it on our own? Where are you on that? No, I definitely think there's a role for government to play here. We have to obviously acknowledge that government's role is going to be, you know, kind of a, a minority share in all of this. But I think when it comes to things like social welfare policy, for instance, right now, a lot of our public policies like Medicaid, for instance, and the earned income tax credit end up penalizing lots of working class couples vis-a-vis -vis marriage. I talked to a couple here in Virginia recently. They had two beautiful young, you know, daughters um, she was a stay-at-home mom. He was an IT uh, technician. You know, they would have been very traditional like, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, but because she was on Medicaid um, and Medicaid was covering her and the kids, um, you know, they'd actually sat down at the kitchen table and run the calculations and realized that if, you know, they got married, um, they'd lose access to um, Medicaid. Um, so, these are the kinds of situations that give me pause. And I do think we need to think about ways to eliminate the marriage penalty facing, you know, many working class couples. Um, I also think we should be <clears throat> thinking too about, um, you know, family life education and our, and our public high schools and even kind of like a, a PSA campaign to just sort of give people the idea that if you follow what's called the success sequence, three steps, getting at least a high school degree, working full-time in your early 20s, and then getting married before having kids. If you follow those three steps, your odds of being poor are just 3%, um, you know, by the time you're in your late 20s and in your 30s. And, you know, I think too many young adults don't kind of understand or appreciate that that sequencing, particularly in terms of putting marriage before the baby carriage, um, is really so important for getting off on the right foot. So, Again, not an elaborate, you know, um, governmental initiative. I think kind of just doing some basics when it comes to sort of letting people know how much marriage matters um, for you know us on a variety of different uh, levels, and also um, making sure that we're not ending up, you know, penalizing marriage. That that would be helpful when it comes to um, uh, strengthening marriages. You know. Across the US. Now, that's sort of the direct response. We could also, I think, talk about ways to, to, to bring more men um, into strong vocational education programs and apprenticeship training programs that would you know, qualify them for decent paying you know, middle income jobs. Uh, we could think about um, doing things like um, revising the child tax credit to strengthen um, families as well and give them more options when it comes to. Uh, family formation and, you know, having kids as well. So there are a couple of things that I think we could do to help uh, families. Um, but this is also obviously a very important cultural challenge facing us as well. And another challenge I want to turn to now is the issue of fertility. So obviously when people get married, they often start thinking about kids. 
But are you seeing that, and, and this could be obviously related to age and people getting married later, but are you seeing more and more issues with fertility issues with married individuals? So there, I think people are having more fertility problems and that is related to, you know, to waiting um, to marry and waiting to have kids. Um, so that's certainly part of the story, but we're also seeing kind of just a decline in fertility as well. It's sort of more, more general and that's related to, to people postponing marriage um, and marrying in, in fewer numbers as well. So our fertility rate hit about 1.6 in 2020. And that's the lowest level it's ever been. That means that the average woman over time would have about 1.6 kids. And the replacement rate to kind of keep the population, you know, at the same level without immigration is about 2.1 kids per woman on average. So, again, we're kind of hitting record low territory here in the U.S. on the fertility front. And what's, I think, particularly, I think, worrisome for me is that Japan was at about this level in the late 1980s. And since then, Japan, you know, dropped dramatically when it came to fertility. And now Japan is a real problem with low fertility, low marriage, uh, many young adults who are not dating, not having sex. It's just kind of, uh, you know, it's a whole new world that's sort of showing up there in um, in Japan. And, and it, I would say this has two two angles to it. One is what does this mean to the person? And we've discussed some of that as far as happiness and marriage. But of course, we know that it's devastating for people who want to have kids and can't. But there's the other side of what does it mean for a country? So when you look at our low fertility rate, people not having as many kids as they used to on average. And at the same time, we have people like uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry saying, because we have too many people in this world, we're not going to have more kids than two. What do you say to these depopulation efforts and even the messages that are being sent to young people thinking that if you have kids, it's actually bad for the environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one thing I would know just from a kind of emotional and psychological perspective, we're seeing that kind of classically like 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was a negative link between having kids and people's happiness. So Parents were less happy than non-parents is sort of mm. the bottom line here. But in, in probably the last two decades, that relationship has kind of switched. And we're seeing now that parents are actually happier um, than childless adults. And I think that's partly because today we're living in a world where social media and other kinds of ele electronic enticements are kind of keeping people, you know, away from in-person experiences we're seeing an increase in what I call kind of atomization, folks not going to church or not being involved in the local secular you know, communities. And so there's just a kind of individualism afoot that I think is leading to more and more loneliness and unhappiness. And so I think for those reasons, marriage and family have become actually more important for people's right. basic emotional well-being. So I would sort of take issue with the kind of Prince Harry you know, perspective in that regard in terms of not appreciating sort of how much I think family matters today for people's basic emotional and social welfare. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's also the case too that, you know, population growth is crucial for economic growth. It's crucial for kind of keeping our coffers growing when it comes to the federal and the state and local governments. And, you know, it just kind of lends a certain kind of dynamism to, you know, any developed economy and society. So I think, you know, one of the problems facing us is we're going to be, um, you know, not having enough people to keep afloat uh, programs like, for instance, Social Security. Yeah.
And so we've talked about a lot of the negatives that we see in trends. I just want to end with something that I could be incorrect about, but it seems to be a positive trend when it comes to kids. And that is we, I think as we think of women who they entered into the career, feminism usually met you go for your career and you don't get married or you don't have kids. But there seems to be a switch even among some of the celebrities, whether it's Beyonce or Kim Kardashian, where they're having lots of kids and it's celebrated. So is there is there some sort of switch with the view of motherhood and that young people are viewing that more favorably than what a woman would have potentially, let's say, 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, I do think there's a way in which parts of the pop culture are pretty mom-friendly. We published a piece on that sort of theme in family studies this week um, in anticipation of motherhood. And you certainly do see, I think, among you know many of my colleagues in, you know, in academia um, are much more sort of parent-oriented. It would have been the case for the sort of pioneering feminists you know, in academia back in the 1970s, for instance. So there, there has been a kind of, of shift there that, that's constructive. I also would say, too, that we're seeing an, a slight increase in the share of kids who are living with uh, two stably married parents. And that's in part because divorce has come down since 1980 and non-real childbearing has leveled off since the recession, since about 2009. So those two trends together kind of translate into more family stability for our kids. Um, and that's that's obviously good news as well. And before you go, if people want to read or buy some of your books, read what you have to say, follow you on Twitter, where can they go? So on Twitter, I'm Brad Wilcox, IFS. And then when it comes to sort of the, uh, the web, uh, familystudies.org is a place where both uh, I and my colleagues in sociology and economics, psychology, are regularly publishing articles on a variety of different family topics. Well, we so appreciate your work on this important issue. And thank you so much for joining. She thinks Brad Wilcox with the National Marriage Project. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you today, Beverly. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That's iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode, if she thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for watching.